Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Hello and welcome back to the Indie Football Podcast. I'm your host, Vidushina Hantaraja, and I'm joined today by our chief football writer of The Independent, Miguel Delaney, senior football correspondent, Melissa Reddy, and northern football correspondent, Mark Critchley. Now, after one of the wildest weekends in Premier League history, after a 3-0, a 4-0, a 6-1, and a damn 7-2 as well, West Ham in particular winning another football match. I don't think anyone could have guessed that we were due for the festival of goals that we saw uh, over the recent match week. Um, Certainly plenty to get our teeth into today. And we're going to start with you, Miguel. You've written about this wild start to the season, and certainly you and I had a discussion on on why that might be. what are your conclusions then after after those ridiculous scenes over the last few days? Uh, I think it's a number of things, but the biggest is really that, and when you, when you think about it like this, it's actually impossible that football could be affected. But the whole game is basically off kilter right now. It's just not on. It's just not on its usual setting. Um, there's still no fans, which actually feels more alien now than it would have done in Project Restart, because you know that was about getting through. And, and compromising and adapting to finish a season, whereas this is a new season, so you, you like there's supposed to be that bit more sense of reality. Instead, this kind of weird alien setting continues. Then there's the lack of pre. I was about to say the truncated preseason, but the lack of preseason at all, which really meant that there was no build up to the season. It, it is almost a sense of players just you know turning up and being able to play unless they have, unless they have COVID. Um, and w- w- with that also further influenced by the fact that some clubs are at different stages of fitness because they played in Europe um, or finished at different stages. Uh, and then you've got f- further issues like, um, you know, these changes in the rules of VAR, a, a, a wider kind of evolution towards more open football where defending in a traditional sense doesn't really exist anymore uh and i I do i mean that seriously and it's all added up to just this a game that's kind of off kilter and you know uh to to quote uh irvin welsh or or phil to the the old rules don't apply or sorry to paraphrase him yeah yeah that's fair enough i I suppose yeah it could never really just be one thing although i I like the idea that without found fans shouting man on that defending has gone down the pan which is um, three that's been doing the rounds. Um, we'll start though, um, despite the fact that we had a seven to seven to fight, despite the fact that it was the defending champions on the wrong end of that. Going to start with Manchester United versus Tottenham because that was also a pretty staggering six-one result in Spurs' favour. Critch, you were at Old Trafford. Um, quite simply, did you see this kind of result coming? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, you asked me this last week about the um, the City Leicester game as well, and it's a, it's a similar answer where you know you you would never predict that that would be the final scoreline, but once it happens, um, you 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 see the reasons why. And um, 
yeah, I thought that was it, it's writing it afterwards. It, it is it's, it's the worst result of the post Sir Alex Ferguson era, if you want to call it that. It's the worst performance, certainly. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer said that it was his his worst day ever, um, spanning football and <laughs> maybe his life. He seems to suggest at some points as well, um, and. I, it's just you know the, the, it's been hard to really articulate it in the last few days just just how total the mess is. I think um, the problem with United at the moment is that you you can't point to one person or, or one department or one uh, facet of the of the football operation that's failing. It, all of them are. All of those facets are failing. Um, I'm sure we'll get onto the transfer window later, but. That's that's come to an end. And though they were very active yesterday, and there was a lot of signings, it, it's hard not to come away with the feeling that, given that the whole thing was dictated by Jaden Sancho and the and the chase for him, and given that that didn't come off, that you can only look back on it as a missed opportunity and and a failure, basically. Um, and then on the pitch, I mean, I've honestly never seen, <laughs> I've, I've never seen a game where any one of the the six goals that Tottenham scored practically could go down as one of the worst pieces of defending that has been committed on <laughs> on a football pitch at Old Trafford by by a Manchester United team. Every single goal that they conceded was simply just just like outlandishly poor, and um, you, you just come to the fact that something's fundamentally broken uh, in in terms of the football club and and. People will, like I said, there's there's so many different places where you can point a finger um, that I don't think there's necessarily some silver bullet and there's no panacea, there's no cure, there's no player that they could sign either yesterday or in January or next summer that would immediately solve everything. There's not one decision that you would make uh, in terms of the coaching staff, whether, you know, people are talking about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's long-term future again. Um, I think that's a very valid conversation and one that's not, brought up enough perhaps but at the same time I don't think that if you went and got a different manager in tomorrow that many of the other problems that undermine all the good work that a manager might do they would still exist and they would still be something that might hold the club back and then you've got the situation as we've mentioned with the with the recruitment policy and with Ed Woodward and Matt Judge and all the officials that are responsible for that so I mean (laughs) Yeah, we, we can we can dig down into it if you like, but there's just there's almost there's almost too much going wrong at the same time to really to really pinpoint and say this is this is what you know this is the problem here. You've actually ticked off quite a few of my um, my checkpoints that I was going to probe <laughs> you with, um, and you've left me with I suppose there's one thing that we should talk about above above all that I suppose maybe alongside all that, um, but basically how good Tottenham were um, potentially their best performance under Jose Mourinho. Yeah, I mean, look, they could take a lot of credit from that. I think we always kind of look for primacy in games and, you know, was it that United were bad and was it that Tottenham were good? You know, it seems like a bit of a cliche question that Shearer and people always ask on Match of the Day when they're doing their analysis. I think, uh, and I've seen Tottenham supporters as well and, and people associated with the club, they're, they're kind of like, well, nobody's talking about us after this, after like one of the most, one of the best results in our recent Premier League history, you'd say. Um the way that Tottenham set up was just perfectly you know, suited to to exploit United's weaknesses. I think Jose is a he's a manager who, who puts a lot of faith and a lot of stock in 
we know he, he likes wingers who work hard and you know there's been there's been a few noises flying around today about how they went and targeted basically United's fullbacks because they knew they wouldn't be protected by Mason Greenwood and Marcus Rashford in front of them and I, you know particularly Greenwood he's a young player and he's a very promising player but I think that's been exposed before it was the same at Brighton the week before um Spurs really locked in on that and you, you could see even with like even with the song goal for the second goal where they take the free quick uh, free kick quickly there's just that little bit more nouse about them um and whether it's because <laughs> Mourinho's been in the dressing room drilling them how, how nasty they need to be and what c words they need to be and etc cetera, etc cetera. um I think you know that's 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 maybe starting to pay off and you start to see the benefits of that and they're just a little bit more savvy and a little bit more streetwise. And like I said on the pod last week, I feel like we're beginning to see the makings of a Jose Mourinho team here. We're not still not quite sure where or how that how that team where that team's pitched, where whether it's like a fourth place team, whether it's a fifth place team, whether it's in around that mark, not quite challenging for the title. But suddenly you are seeing the makings of a unit there and of a, of a team. I think Ndombele's kind of resurgence and and He's he's a huge player for them now. The midfield looks really settled. Heuberg as well was very good, I thought, on Sunday. So, yeah, I, I just genuinely kind of impressed with Spurs and how they're just ticking along. They had a poor result in the opening weekend, but it seems to be coming together for them. And, um, and yeah, I, I still almost slightly fancy them to, to really run it close for fourth and maybe even get fourth. Mel, we'll move on to you for the next game. Finally, talking about the 7-2 uh, Aston Villa versus Liverpool. You were there for the Indy. Um, quite simply, what the hell happened? Well, in summary, everything that could go wrong for Liverpool did go wrong. I think Jürgen Klopp said the things you shouldn't do on a football pitch is everything they did do. And Virgil van Dijk said they didn't turn up from the first minute to the last, which is all accurate. Um Liverpool have always played the high line and the high line in essence is not the issue. It's playing a high line when you have no pressure on the ball and it was absolutely astounding at how little Liverpool did without the ball, which is their, that's the thing everybody credits them for, everybody, you know, from Pep Guardiola to Maurizio Pochettino, Diego Simeone, they all talk about, yes, Liverpool have plenty of explosiveness offensively, but their key traits is how relentless they are when they lose possession, how good they are at second balls, at pressurizing the opponents. And Aston Villa just had none of that. They were given... The freedom of the pitch, which Jack Grealish used excellently and Ollie Watkins really profited from. And I thought as well, you know, while we are talking about how incredibly poor Liverpool were, Villa were from the first whistle just on it. They had a game plan that they were quite confident in. Uh, Watkins said they fancied themselves and you and you could see it. They had two opportunities before Adrian's blunder. And from that, they just were encouraged and grew in confidence because Liverpool were so passive. Did you get the sense then that, um, you know, 
obviously teams will look at this and think they can get a Liverpool, but from from Liverpool's point of view, do you think there is a fear that you know Aston Villa have um, you know found and, and I suppose shown to the world some serious chinks in in this particular system? I think there's quite a few things. Liverpool have always known that the high line is susceptible to be exposed. They, you know, it's a risky strategy. They know that they will give up a few chances in a game, but they back themselves to put enough pressure on the ball and to squeeze the opponents enough when they don't have possession um, to just nullify that. Liverpool will back themselves to be better than the risk and the issue is when so many players and bar Mohamed Salah um, for the first half from Andy Robertson and some of Diego Jota when he was on the ball, bar those three, the rest of Le- Liverpool's team was completely abysmal. There was a non-existent midfield. The right side kept getting picked off, which is what every team tries to do, really, because the alternative is trying to attack Virgil van Dijk and Andy Robertson. You are always going to get greater joy on the other side. And I think the the major concern beyond all of the players being out of kilter was the fact that Liverpool just did not adjust in the entire game. There was no um, intelligence on the pitch. There was no thinking, okay, we ha- we're we not pressurizing the ball. We have to drop deep. Beyond just betraying their footballing principles, Liverpool also did not react to the early gaffe from Adrian, which has been really one of the facets of, of the team over the last two years, how good they are at bouncing back. Uh, their heads dropped from there, and that, like I said, just gave Villa so much encouragement. Um, I've seen people say, you know, um, Alisson was missing and Sadio Mane, and obviously, yes, Thiago as well. Those are players you do want to have in your starting lineup. Still, Liverpool should have been a lot better. They shouldn't have been so easily played through. Genuinely, it was staggering how comfortable Aston Villa found it. And Dean Smith had said afterwards that at 5-2, he was still wondering whether it was enough because Liverpool, you know, can hurt you in attack. They can uh, mount a comeback, but he was giving them way too much credit. There was absolutely no fight in that team, no direction. And they were never going to do anything actually to properly hurt Villa in that game. And if anything, um, I thought Villa were at their best after Liverpool scored. Uh, They got two quick goals after Salah's first and repeated that after Salah's second. You know, a team like Villa, you think maybe they get into a commanding position and then they try to consolidate and try to keep it tight. But the nature of how passive Liverpool were just forced them to, to keep going and it was remarkable how much energy they showed, like I said, from the first whistle to the last. Migs, just before we go to the break, um, I wanted to ask you something, actually, because, you know, you, you've spoken about how the role of, of you know, centre-backs in particular are changing and uh, how they have to be midfielders. And, and I suppose you could look at that Liverpool team and see that when they're at full strength, 
they have the best players for those different roles. It's, you know, so it's especially those fullbacks who are basically wingers. Um, do you see this potentially as, as the start of, of something new in terms of the way that people uh, attack Liverpool? Or do you reckon it's just the case that if you're going to play like that, you just have to have your, you know, your, your, your first 11 fit and firing? And that, I suppose, we can also throw Alisson into that as well. Well, I think this, first of all, this is maybe where Villa deserve particular credit in that it felt like they didn't just spot a potential vulnerability or a few potential vulnerabilities in Liverpool that they could exploit, but also um, the the manner they executed it. And the, the flip side, though, is I think it took quite a significant drop-off from Liverpool for that to be possible. Uh, so, like, in a normal game, I just don't think that happens to the same room. And obviously, 7-2 is anything but a normal game. But, but I also think it's why this season could be or at least has the ingredients right now to throw up a lot of this. And maybe, as a lot of people are saying the last few days, could be the closest thing to a 2015-16 Leicester season in that the calendar is so packed and it's going to have such an effect and it would all be so distorted that things won't be able to level out in the usual way. And if you look at teams like Liverpool and Man City, you're supposed to, as the kind of the two, by far, the best performing clubs of the last three years, what the modern football context does is because resources are so intensely loaded in certain directions, it means when big clubs get it right, they can go to levels beyond what we've ever seen in the game before. And that's what's happened with Liverpool and City. And it's why we've seen these points returns. Um, but but the issue is they need to be on it for that to happen. And, and again, they're kind of the resources and the general the way they've adapted to the, the modern game means they, they can usually be on it. But if there's any sort of drop-off, then because the the chemistry of these teams and the cohesion is so it, it, it's so deep, it's so ingrained, you it means when and we've we've seen we've seen this particularly with Man City, when, when there's any link that's broken or any kind of laxus on one side, it can suddenly bring these you know more pronounced collapses. And I think because of the nature of this season. We might see that a lot more, and it's why we won't see the same points turns, and we'll could potentially see not just a few results like this, but hopefully a more open race. Yeah, well, we've got all that to look forward to for the season running, and a bit more after the break as well. Join us in a bit. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hello and welcome back to this episode of the Indie Football Podcast, where we're going to move on to Leeds United 1 Manchester City won Master and Apprentice, whatever you want to call it. It was Bielsa versus Pep Guardiola. Our very own Master slash Apprentice, Mark Critchley, was there at Ellen Road <laughs> on a Saturday night. Um, Critch, this game had the big build-up, and certainly from afar, it did not disappoint. Yeah, it, it was one of those kind of rare ones where it did live up to the billing, I think. Um, and... Yeah. Just the, the tempo of it. I mean, my, myself, having been, having done City Leicester and then that game on Saturday and then United on Sunday and then the transfer window yesterday, 
I am just kind of ready to just lie down in a dark room for a few days and just shut off from the world because of all of the games, all kind of very crazy, this one was almost the most intense. And I suppose we expected that given given what we know about the two managers and and their styles of play. Um, But it was almost in the way City started so well and it was probably some of the best football that I've seen for them probably in about six months. They had that period during the restart where they were just battering teams but this was this was against a you know a side that was not not you wouldn't say they're equal technically but but definitely you know competitive for them and they were they were all over them in those first 20 minutes just relentless basically um but it was really impressive how Leeds came back after that and then you know for all the talk about <laughs> Bielsa and Guardiola and, you know, hipster derbies and stuff like that. It almost became a kind of classic 1970s, 80s English football in that it was just so direct in that the pace was utterly relentless. The energy levels are incredible. The industry that both sides were showing. And, you you know, you'd, you'd have your head up one minute trying to note down a chance that happened at one end of the pitch and you'd miss another at the at the other end. It was it was just that, that sort of game. Um that being said, I think in the end, you know, if, if there was one team that deserved to probably take the three points, it was Leeds, um, given how they responded to that first 20 minutes and given that you would say, apart from a little spell at the end as well, they were just the better side, uh, the more dominant. And I think that's got to be concerning for City because you do see, it is it is a common pattern, we've spoke about it before, how under Guardiola, um, they would have these spells in games where they might concede goal after goal after goal and and suddenly the game will be taken away from them. Now, that didn't happen on Saturday, interestingly, but it did have that kind of pace to it and it did have that sense where, you know, City can spend half an hour, 45 minutes all at sea and really anything could happen. Um, and... You know, like I said, that's been a that's been a theme that we've picked up on before under Guardiola, but it feels like now it's becoming something that we're seeing with more regularity. Um, you know, it was this was only like a few days after the Leicester game. Um, we saw it in the Champions League in August. It, it feels like they're becoming more commonplace. These kinds of uh, I don't know what you call them, like a brain fart or something that City just seems to suffer. Um, and. Yeah, and, and you know you do have to factor in the fact that it's Leeds, and this is a team that by the end of the season, getting a point at Ellen Road might look like a very good result for, um, especially for like top six clubs who give Leeds that space to play into, um, as City did. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think there was a lot of food for thought for that for for Guardiola to come away with, uh, and and for Leeds, I think you know established they played. They played four games. They've got um, is it seven points off the top of my head um, now, and they've they've played Manchester City and Liverpool. And yes, we're talking about this season in which it almost seems like there's no, you know, anything can happen in any given game. It, it does feel like they're holding their own, and you know, any any kind of suspicion that they might, uh, well, not stay up. I, I'm still, I'm still. It's difficult to get a handle on them. I think we're all kind of saying mid-table, tenth, eleventh. I'm, I'm not so sure about that because they had that strange game against Fulham as well, where they, they, they win it four-three and don't particularly impress. And Fulham look like a side that really aren't built for this division. But you just, you just feel as though, especially in these games against elite opposition, Leeds are really going to be a test for, a, for a lot of teams, and, um, and they're going to take points.
you mentioned about the, um, I suppose, the, the brain farts that Man City suffer. Um, will Ruben Diaz make them immune to that? There was obviously a lot of talk about him potentially replacing the hole left by Vincent Company, and it, you know, looked despite the fact it was quite a crazy game that he impressed on debut. What did you make of him? I thought he was okay. I don't, I don't think he was anything better than okay. I think um, from people who have watched him a little bit more closely, um, they're not totally sold on whether he's going to be able to come in and, and make that impact straight away. I think it's important for City that they had a body, uh, somebody who was competent enough to to step in as a, um, a right-footed centre-half and uh, step into that role that, as you mentioned, has kind of been vacated since company left. Funnily enough, they haven't managed to get uh, rid of Eric Garcia before the end of the deadline to Barcelona and now face losing him on a free and they're, they're slightly oversubscribed in the centre-back area. But... No, more generally, I think, like like we said last week after the Leicester game, I don't think City's defensive issues are anything to do with personnel, really. I think, um, although it helps, I think there's something much more systemic that you're seeing, um, particularly with how Guardiola's changing formations. He, he's, he, he didn't on Saturday, but he's, he's played the kind of double pivot in midfield before that, I think. That really, <laughs> we're getting into technical language, but I really think that doesn't help uh, their pressing game and who goes and who stays. And it, it starts to, you, you know, holes start appearing in the, in the midfield quite easily. And the issues are much more to do tactically, that I think, um, than, you know, uh, signing another £60 million defender is, 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 going to, is going to solve those problems. I don't think that's the case. And, you know, you saw... Um, Richard Keyes mentioned about Sam Allardyce, whether he just comes in as a as a defensive coach again. It's it's not about it's not about people seem to think he was joking on that as well. I don't I don't know if he's capable of that level of irony. I mean he's a, a funny guy, but anyway. Irony uh, irony requires a degree of self awareness, doesn't it? Yeah, that's what I was for, but I don't know. I don't know. Uh, anyway, less about Richard Keyes. I think you know, that fundamentally misunderstands what the problems at City are. They aren't about um oh we'll just We'll just get somebody in to coach the defence and how how to lie low and like win second balls and and head away crosses and stuff like that and we can just carry on playing our own game. You know the, whole, the city's whole kind of idea out of, out of possession. Um, everybody needs to be involved in that. And Guardiola afterwards was talking about how um, he kind of pinned the blame, if you like, for the result on the fact that his wingers Ferran Torres and Riyad Mahrez weren't pressing correctly. So that goes to show that it's it's not necessarily about what happens at the back of the pitch, it's about what happens at the front of it as well. And it's, it's a bit more of a holistic um, approach to to winning the ball back and what you do out of possession. So no, I, I don't I don't think Diaz solves things for good. Certainly not. Um but you know, they needed somebody and they've got that in and that, that is a that is a small positive for them. It is on to the transfer window, which closed yesterday amid well, well, 1.2 billion, I think, spent, uh, despite the fact that these are, well, tight times for most, certainly for other leagues as well, when you look at the numbers that are being spent in Spain, Italy and Germany. Um, Miguel, you've been kind of dissecting this over the last um, 24 hours, not least just chasing leads, but also, I suppose, looking at it from afar and, and how, you know, English clubs have been able to flex their muscles somewhat and... And paper over the cracks with uh, the bit of money. I'm thinking specifically about Manchester United here. But, yeah, what have you made about how the Premier Leagues have conducted themselves in the midst of this global pandemic? 
Well, it's some disconnect from the 31st of March when Daniel Levy came out with the following. Uh, when I read or he, or sorry, when I read or hear stories about player transfers this summer, like nothing has happened, people need to wake up to the enormity of what is happening around us. What happens? Uh, Spurs probably have their most enormous transfer window. Um, <laughs> reasons I can remember. Because even, even the bail window in 2013, when they signed seven players, that was in the back of a world record fee. Uh, this isn't, although I suppose many people would point to the £175 million loan they got from the Bank of, Il- of England to cover COVID, uh, the impact of COVID. Um, but the bottom line in this is basically the same as the bottom line in the reason for football's huge problems and huge disconnect, huge financial disparity, and that's TV money. Uh, the, the, the TV money basically saved the Premier League clubs and to a degree ensured it's business as usual. But it is, it is incredible how... They can go for a situation of saying, oh, no, this won't be a normal summer to one then where a lot of the clubs are actually spending more. So, yeah, they're right. They're not. They're, it's not a normal summer. It's, they've, gone, they've gone even further in one direction. Um, and I mean, I suppose this, this is just the reality. Like I've done a piece on it that should be out by the time this podcast is up. You know, uh, one, one, one view is that it's, you know, this isn't spending. It's an investment that, you know, a club's financial health is related to their health on the pitch. Um, and if you, if you take the case of a party at Arsenal, you know, the argument is that this will make them a Champions League club again and all that in, income to come. Uh, but it's just that that rationale seems to only ever be imply, uh, applied in one direction. And, and it, it is difficult for it, for it not to leave a bit of a sour taste for the game. It, it, basically, this is what gives people like Matt Hancock ammunition. And, they, and you have to say their ammunition in, that, in, the, in, in this case. Yeah, I feel like I'm going to make a massive hypocrite of myself because I'm, we are going to talk about the transfers and who had the best window. But, you know, you've written in the past about super clubs and we've wondered if maybe the pandemic would cause football to reassess and become more efficient. That clearly hasn't happened. And instead of having this reflection, it does feel a bit like we're accelerating towards that world that you warned us off from. You know, do you feel like that? Yeah, I mean, it does, I mean, a lot of people said that the pandemic might are one relative benefit to football and made a lot of losses and obviously kind of the, the, the pain in general life is that it could allow the space for the reset both cultural and financial that football needs yeah it's probably actually done the opposite is it's, it's just um exacerbated problems that were already there saw seen cracks to widen uh, at, at the moment it's it's only going in that direction and and you can see that with the debate over the potential football bailout. So, yeah, next question. Chelsea had the best window? <laughs> um, I, I'm i actually going to slightly dodge this question, not, not, or not only because of what I've said above, but also because this whole stuff of who wins the transfer window, we won't know <laughs> who wins the transfer window until next season, or maybe three seasons. If we get like Everton last season, quote, won the transfer window and um, and then had <laughs> a dismally disappointing season. Um, I suppose, I mean, if you want to switch it and say who has solved the most issues in their team, um, which is probably how a transfer window should be looked at within, within the relative success of the players, a different matter. But I'd probably say Tottenham, actually. Uh, Tottenham probably... I mean, they're, they're probably coming out of a feeling they still have the least to do. Uh, maybe Everton up there. Uh, I actually think Chelsea still have issues. Uh, I I think they had a weirdly lopsided window. Uh, and I think 
I have questions about Thiago Silva and that defence still. But um, yeah, I mean, in terms of not who won the window, but in terms of who had the signings they most needed, I'd probably go Spurs or Everton. I think yeah. that's accurate. I'd also plump for Everton and Spurs, correcting their key weaknesses, but also adding greater balance and stuff to the squad. And it's funny because I think Everton in previous seasons have had, okay, apart from the Rodriguez signing, which obviously brought a lot of attention, in previous windows, they got a lot more attention. On their, you know, Miguel referenced it there, winning the transfer market, but this time when they've actually done really good business, it's been more understated. Well, on that on that note, um, I suppose it's worth going to you, Critch, and discussing Manchester United's um, signings. Well, t- two they made, well, confirmed yesterday in uh, Edison Cavani and Lex Tellez, the left back. Um, obviously, the big one though is missing out on on Jaden Sancho. Um, I'd like to say this is the final time we're going to ask you to talk about Jaden Sancho and Manchester United, but we both know that's probably not going to be the case. But at least you've got a couple of months off now. But how did it get to a situation where, you know, United were talking certainly behind the scenes of, of how this was, you know, basically a done deal in the in the summer and now, you know, it was only officially yesterday that it was dead in the water? Um, well, to be honest, I think people are familiar with the story because so little changed um, from the moment that on the 10th of August where Dortmund came out very publicly and said that, um, the deadline that they had imposed had passed because they felt they would need time in order to sign a replacement for Sancho before the start of the Bundesliga season. Um, once that deadline had passed and once United had not met their €120 million Euro valuation, um, from their perspective, that was that was it. And that was the end of the conversation. And, and that, you know, there's, there's differences between public stances and, and, and what happens in private and... Um, the negotiations themselves were always dealt through intermediaries, um, which almost gives Dortmund that little bit of a get out there to say, you know, we're not holding, talk, we're not in talks with Manchester United when the, the, the talks and the negotiations were always ongoing. But the, the fact of the matter is that United never felt that Dortmund's valuation of Sancho was realistic in the current climate and weren't prepared to pay it. Um, Dortmund didn't feel themselves that they, you know, there's been a few suggestions even that Dortmund felt that 120 million euros was a fairly good price for Jaden Sancho. That was actually the the coronavirus discount, if you like, to not put it in, you know, in those terms. But you know, that that's that's how they felt. There, there was already there was already the the effect of the market was already va- seen in that valuation, uh, and United still weren't prepared to pay it. And you know, the, the I think also Dortmund would have liked that money up front as well. There wasn't too much flexibility in terms of uh, instalments and add-ons and things like that. They they wanted that money there. So, you know, in these times where, you know, it's important to be cash rich, they wanted to have that security of, of getting the money through the door immediately. So, um, and that was it. And I, I was on this podcast last week talking about how it kind of felt like the ball was in nobody's court and it would require somebody to blink. Um, and basically nobody budged from those, from those positions. 
Um, there's, there's serious questions to ask about United from that perspective because they, although they were always considering other alternatives, um, a lot of those alternatives passed them by because they were so transfixed on Sancho. And you can look at that in two ways. You can say that he's a he's a player who, given his age and given his potential, I think that you, you he'd, he'd be by far and away the first choice of all the right wingers that they were linked with during the summer. He's the one that you'd want. And so from their perspective, it made sense to try and hold out and and persuade Dortmund to lower that asking price. But to be honest, Dortmund were unwavering in their stance. And when you meet that kind of, you know, that, that, that sort of resistance, questions will be asked ultimately that should you have moved earlier for somebody else and, and looked elsewhere. And you got yourself in a situation yesterday where United complete four different signings, none of them particularly inspiring. There's, there's certainly question marks over most of them. Um, and the headline event of the transfer window, of their transfer window, if you like, which was always going to be Sancho, that was always going to colour whatever came afterwards. That has been a failure. And so you can only really look back on it from from the perspective as we stand now as as a failure. We'll see how Edison Cavani fits in. I don't think that um, his injury record uh, over the past couple of years, you know, this is this is a player in the autumn of his career, certainly, and, and and not one that you would expect to come in and, and transform the side. Um, Tellez, I, Tellez I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a little bit more positive on, I think, that they could easily have overlooked the need for a real left-footed left-back to, to kind of cover for Luke Shaw, given he's so unreliable with injuries. Um, and they did address that in the end, and he's probably just about as good as the other options they were looking for, so... Fair enough, but otherwise it's it's been Donny van der Beek, of course. Like he has, he hasn't even started a game yet. So having qualified for the Champions League and, and got that third place finish again, with the United are left in a situation it needs to be a common thread. When whenever they qualify for the Champions League, they don't take that next step and don't kick on. And the failure for Sancho, like I say, has just coloured the whole window and made people feel quite, despite the signings that they made on the last day, people feel quite, supporters feel quite down and depressed about the whole situation. And given the results on the pitch as well, the whole thing, it doesn't bode too well for the season ahead. Just on that as well, it could be a bit of a false economy for United because this was probably the last chance they had to sign Sancho without any competition. Uh, Because I'd expect Liverpool and maybe Bayern Munich to come in next summer. And I think Liverpool will be his preferred destination, given he has spoken to Klopp and really impressed by him. And I, I, that was something that was said actually repeatedly throughout this this whole saga. While Sancho was willing to move to United, uh, he, as, as a lot of people said, he, he wasn't exactly beating down the door. Um, there was one point where it was taught that he might have to put in a transfer request. That was never going to be an option, not for him. And... Um, it's possible United haven't just lost out this summer, but maybe lost out in the long term as well. We're also talking about, you know, United not wanting to pay Borussia Dortmund's valuation, but he was their primary target. They knew what the figure was from the onset. They knew Dortmund wouldn't really negotiate, which I think we've mentioned before on this podcast because we've seen their position before with Dembele, for example. But also spending on the young talent, the teenage talent that they've brought in. I mean, if Sancho was what the entire strategy 
for the window was built around. And like Miguel says, if this is your clear shot at him. And like Solskjaer said, that United are so well equipped to um, take advantage of this window to exploit it, given their financial status. It, it None of it makes sense. It just smacks off incoherent thinking because again I think the reason why there's such despondency about the window is because we've heard about this cultural reset for such a long time and Cavani while he is hard running and has pedigree and experience and and all of the good things you can say about him is still in contrast to what they've said they're trying to build and how they want to move forward they were haggling over the Teles V what did they say? Three million pounds at the end, I think, Critch? From from what they were initially quoted to what they've eventually uh, settled on. And that's, you know, you're wasting weeks there when you can just get the deal over the line. And that's after uh, missing out on Regulon to, to Tottenham. You'd think, if anything, they'd up the ante in, in getting that position sorted. But also you look at it and and the holes in the squad are still there. Even if you, you know, just park Sancho for a bit, they haven't remedied their issues at centre-back. But moreover, we, we talk about transfers and stuff, but it's we talk about United like they don't have the world's most expensive defender, the best paid goalkeeper, the Premier League's record incoming you know, over a hundred million pounds in attacking talent with Bruno Fernandes and Anthony Martial, two of the very best academy graduates in England um, in their front line as well. And, you know, we talk, from their opening games, we don't think that kind of squad can get more than a very fortunate three points and concede less than 11 goals. We... I think so much has been, or so much time and energy has been spent talking about transfers and signings when not enough really is said about the people that put the squad together and the man in charge of extracting the best from the squad who just hasn't. Yeah, spot on, spot on. And, you know, on the subject of just paying the fee or, you know, paying the valuation or the clause or whatever, um, Arsenal ended up doing that eventually on the final day, getting Thomas Partey from uh, Atletico Madrid. I've got to say from Ghana. He's from he's Ghanaian, but they got him from Atletico Madrid. Um, I suppose to uh, this is an open question to everyone actually, but kind of from the outside, it seemed like that particular deal had kind of run its course, and then Arsenal through Hail Mary um, going for La Liga with that, um, you know, finally meeting his um, his release clause. Um, and then from then on, and then from that point, it seems to go quite smoothly. Now I can understand why you wouldn't want to go to Diego Simeone and ask him for one of his players to his face. But um, it looks like Arsenal have done some pretty sharp bit of business here. Yes, uh, and almost, to be honest, the bigger question here is, given what we've talked about earlier, how Arsenal were actually able to afford it. Uh, as I've just written, Cronka um, was apparently is apparently willing to underwrite transfer expenditure and uh, losses this window due to COVID. Uh, and sanctioned this at the request of Arteta. And I suppose the argument is that this is investment and could potentially get him into the Champions League, which would mean kind of an extra 50 million income and all the rest of it. But yeah, um, and, and I suppose this this is what reflects about the transfer as well. Um, Arteta sees him as absolutely key to this team, particularly for how he's a rare player who can 
really kind of dynamically carry the ball up the pitch and very quickly turn possession and defence to a blistering counter-attack. Mel, what did you make of the deal and um, I suppose how it was done? Party is an excellent player who's actually been tracked for quite a while by Europe's elite, but I know Manchester United, Liverpool, pretty much every club that's been in the market in recent seasons um, for a a holding midfielder, really. I don't want to say a defensive one because he's not solely a destroyer. He's actually more of a conductor. Like Miguel said, he's he's quite progressive. Um, excellent dribbling skills. Very, very good at reading the game, ball recovery. Um, aerially quite strong. And solves a lot of what Arsenal have, haven't had or have lacked. Um, and... For them, I've seen a lot of people saying they had a clear run at him because, you know, they've just paid the release clause and got it done because no one else was in for him. And that's not really a way to assess a transfer, especially in this kind of window where things have been so convoluted and weird and and most teams haven't been able to do as much as they would have liked. Um, and also the fact that teams have you know the teams that ordinarily would have gone for him already have those positions sorted um he is a very very good player i think you know when we talk about um remedying things uh, one of what Arteta's done and I, I think this is also a point to make on on Solskjaer again um i think a good manager with a clear vision can force things over the line can force a transfer like this, which Arsenal, you know, in in a normal market wouldn't have probably been able to get over the line. But um, also the structural changes behind the scenes and stuff. We talk about um, United's strategy or lack of it in terms of transfers. Um, the fact that a sporting director still hasn't come in. Um, and, and that it was just something said for appeasement. But Arteta's already, behind the scenes, managed to make so many changes and force so many changes. And he's a really good player. He was a really good player at at, at um, Atletico. Obviously, you don't know how someone's going to settle, adjust to a new system and new demands. But there's all the whole hallmarks of a really good player. Critch, um Lastly, on transfers, is there someone or a signing, maybe you know, a team's business that you've been particularly impressed with outside the um, the top six? Yeah, I think um, of the teams outside the top six, and did you add to that discussion before? I think Aston Villa. I think um, some of the acquisitions they made. You look at Ollie Watkins. Obviously, he got the hat trick the other night. Um, very impressive at Brentford in the Championship in terms of the numbers that he was put, putting up. I think he was second top goal scorer last season, but don't think he was taking penalties. I'm, I think I'm right in saying so. Um, very impressive there. You know, they've obviously strengthened in goal with uh, Emi Martinez, who had such a strong end to the season with Arsenal. Um, Ross Barkley's come in on loan as well. Uh, Matty Cash from Nottingham Forest. I think I think it's just kind of smart business. And even even Bertrand Traore, um, I think he only came on as a sub against Liverpool the other night, but he's a player that's, that's impressed before when he's been at like Lyon, Ajax, places like that. So I think Dave... They've almost made the signings that you would say they you would you expect Aston Villa of, of ten years ago to make. It feels like these are signings that are there to establish themselves as 
a Premier League club again. And you know, I know they got promoted last year, but staying up by the virtue of one point and that that dodgy goal line technology decision, um, they've, they've been given a real you know a, a chance to fully establish themselves because they're a club of huge size, huge stature. And who have that base that they will be able to just cement their place here and, and and consolidate, if you like. And it feels like that's exactly what they've done in the market this summer. And I think um, you know they've obviously made a very strong start, and I expect that to continue. Yeah. Okay, that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, thanks again to Miguel, Melissa, and Mark for joining me, and to you for listening as well. If you are a new listener, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And leave us a rating as well so more people can find us. Be sure to follow Indie Sports and Indie Football on social media to keep up to date with everything that's going on. And we'll see you next week. Bye.